Well, I want to thank Rob and thank you all for allowing me to be here this morning to preach to you, to open up God's Word, and to see what wonderful things there are to behold in the book that our Savior God has given us. Rob mentioned the lunches that we have. The only reason they last two hours is because he at last will say, well, I've got to get back. I would go on forever. He is a dear friend. He's sustained me in ways great and small ever since he came here. And I want to thank you all once again for supporting Joan and me in our ministry in Italy. We haven't got there yet, but we are meeting with the congregation in Italy, at least some of them, on Wednesdays via Zoom. We have a Bible study, and our visa application is somewhere in the mill in Italy. We think it's been sent or is about to be sent to the Ministry of the Interior, who has the job of verifying that our church is indeed a church. And then, Lord willing, we'll be approved. And we hope to go, whether with or without a visa, for 90 days uh, starting in July. Uh, we don't have to have a visa to go for actually 89 days. So that is our hope. If you want to pray for us, if you remember us, pray that the people in the Bureau and the Ministry of the Interior have nothing better to do than to say yes to this suppliant couple. Our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. <clears throat> this is being the second Sunday in Easter. It seemed appropriate to preach once more on the resurrection. Uh, and this is Paul's handling of the resurrection and how vital it is, essential to our salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, we in, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, our Father, as we have already prayed this morning, we pray again. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape us, <clears throat> shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and in our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, your servants listen. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, wrote Julian of Norwich. Now, lest you think that this Julian was some sort of starry-eyed ninny, thinking that everything is really okay, let me tell you a little about her life and times. Julian was born in 1343. She lived 58 of her 73 years in what popular historian Barbara Tuckman calls the calamitous 14th century. All manner of thing was not well in 14th century England. The Black Death came to Norwich, Julian's home city, when she was just six years old. And when it came, it killed off about three quarters of the population there. When she was 30, Julian herself became so ill that she was convinced she was dying. They called her curate who came to sit with her until she died. But she recovered by some extraordinary providence. During her life, the on-again, off-again, hundred years war was mostly on in 1341, in her part of England, there was a peasant's revolt, which was brutally put down. About the same time, the followers of John Wycliffe, the so-called morning star of the Reformation, his followers were being persecuted. Often they were burned at the stake in the fields outside of the walls of Norwich. This is the time in which she lived. All in all, Julian's time was, as Barbara Tuckman characterized it, violent, tormented, bewildered, suffering, and disintegrating. And in the face of all this, 
Julian embraced the promises of God and believing she was able to say with all sincerity of heart, not that all is well, but that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. When I was writing about Julian's day and time, I thought it's really not altogether different from our own, is it? In degree, certainly, but in kind, not so much, I think. We're living in the midst of a pandemic. It is not by any means the Black Death, but still. In the last year, we have seen economies weakened, jobs lost personal relationships, damaged addictions, mental disturbances, suicides on the increase. People die isolated from everyone, untouched by a loving hand of a family member. This pandemic has produced its fair share of evils, don't you think? And though it hasn't yet lasted a hundred years, our country has been engaged in armed conflicts on and off for decades. And the whole peoples have been displaced. Our political leaders don't actually murder their opponents as far as we know, but still, there is widespread distrust and confusion, if not actual chaos, in our political system. And the church, the faithful all over the world are being persecuted, even this morning, in ways great and small. Churches are built, bulldozed in China, blown up in the Middle East. Pastors are arrested. Fences are built around churches to keep people out. In China, children are forbidden to attend worship or to receive Christian instruction. There were more martyrs for the faith in the 20th century than all the years since the beginning and even today, people are dying for the name of Christ in Africa and China, North Korea, Southeast Asia, the Middle East. We may not be living in the calamitous 14th century, but still there's violence and torment, bewilderment, suffering, and social and political disintegration aplenty in our day. So in the face of all this, can we, can you and I and all the faithful, like the faithful Julian before us, can we dare to say and to share with others, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well? My answer to that is yes. Brothers and sisters, yes, we can. You see, to the unbelieving world around us, all of history is a tragedy. Life is hard and then you die. And after that, 
Who knows? But our faith, the gospel, tells us that this, that all of history is a comedy. Our faith teaches us here little and hereafter bliss, as the woodcutter sang in the, wood, in the pilgrim's progress. This world is not a tragedy. We, the people of God, are living in a comedy. But perhaps I should explain what that means. You see, human beings, all of us, in every age and every place, we are storytellers. Every society, every culture in the history of the world, every family tells its stories. And in doing this, we are like our storytelling God. We are creatures made in the image of God, and like him, we tell stories. You do understand, don't you? This book that we read, that we believe, that we hold so dear, the Bible is God's story told to whoever has eyes to see and ears to hear. Some people will try to make the Bible into a book of rules. And certainly there are rules and instructions in the Bible. The Bible isn't just a rule book. Some people try to make the Bible into a systematic theology. They reduce Scripture to nothing more than a sort of mine from which we must dig the nuggets of theology and then refine them into a system. Well, I believe there is a system of theology to be found in the Bible, but the Bible isn't just a book of theology. To say that we should have a rule book, to say that we should have a book of theology is to say that God has given us the wrong sort of book. But he has given us a story in the Bible. And God's story, his true story, teaches us who he is and who we are, and why we are here, and where we are going. What we call history is, in fact, his story, the story of everything being lived out in space and in time. We inhabit a story being told by God. And like all stories, it has an ending. We're headed somewhere. There is an end point. And we human beings tell stories because that's what we do. Now, our stories these human stories, the big ones anyway, the ones we call epics, they tend to fall into one of two patterns, the storyline 
follows two trajectories. It heads toward one of two endpoints. There are tragedies. And there are comedies. This is a gross oversimplification, but you can tell tragedies because they're the stories where everybody dies. The characters may begin well enough, but as the story progresses, they slide relentlessly more and more to a bad end. Have you ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke? I love Cool Hand Luke. There are many funny things in that movie. But even as you laugh, if you're paying any attention at all, you can tell that things are not going to end well for Luke. And they don't. For Luke, there is no last-minute conversion, no last-minute reprieve. Luke's tragic story goes to the end that it must go to. It goes to its unhappy end, death. Some stories are tragedies. Some stories are comedies. This, too, is a gross oversimplification, but you can tell a comedy because it's a story in which everyone lives happily ever after. In a comedy, the characters may often do face hardships and dangers. There may be tears, but as the story progresses, they pass through these things to a happy ending where things are restored. There's an episode in the Andy Griffith show. It's called Opie the Birdman. In it, Opie's life is, is well. He gets a new slingshot. His father tells him, be careful. But Opie's a little boy, and being careful is not always what little boys do. So Opie shoots up into the tree and he kills a bird, a mother bird, a bird with a nest full of chicks. Not knowing what to do, he leaves the bird in the lawn and he comes home. He sees the bird, thinks perhaps the neighborhood cat has got a hold of it. He goes in and says something about it to Opie and the hammer of guilt falls. And Opie, in tears, runs to his room. Well, Andy's no fool. He knows what's going on. And he goes up and talks to the boy about it. And he tells him, there's nothing you can do to bring that bird back. But Opie has an idea. So he goes and collects the chicks from the nest and he raises them. And then at the proper time, he releases them and they all fly up into the trees. And his last words are, 
Don't the birds seem full of trees? And you know, you know that all has been restored. Tragedy is where we can laugh sometimes. Comedy is where we may cry. It's not the laughing or the crying. It's the end point that matters. In the text you heard today, I would say it's a a sort of summary of the whole Bible story. It talks about where we came from, Adam, and what happened. We fell. And what has God done about it? He's redeemed us in Christ. And where are we going? To a world of resurrected bliss where God is all in all and we, his people, are before him. That's what I mean when I say the Bible story is a comedy. Now in the text, you see this, what Paul says in the text is necessary. His storyline in these verses is a necessary explanation because some of the Corinthians were denying the resurrection. Probably not of Jesus, but of their own resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Their reasons for believing this really don't concern us. What does concern us is their denial of our resurrection and the effect that it has, this this belief that there is no resurrection, the effect it has on the gospel, on the story that God is telling if it's true. The Corinthians said, the dead do not rise. This is a tragic error, an error that embraces the pagan view of things. It's the tragedy that life is hard and then you die, and after that, who knows? If you believe this error, our faith in Christ is worthless. The gospel is destroyed. Because as the apostle points out, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, why do you believe this? Why do you put your faith in Christ at all? Your faith is in vain. It is futile because you're still in your sins. It isn't upon the death of Christ alone that our salvation rests. Yes, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, Paul says in Romans 4.25. But then he goes on to say he was also at the same time raised for our justification. The gospel is an all or nothing thing. It involves the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. You can't have one without the other. If Jesus has not been raised, well, then his death is 
just another death. It's no different from any other person's death. Yes, Jesus may have led a wonderful life. He may have He may have taught us great things, but if all we have from Jesus is his teaching, his example, then we have nothing at all. The last words we hear of Jesus are, he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away then the story that God is telling, the gospel itself, is a great, great tragedy. And for us, those who have denied ourselves and are taking up our cross daily to follow Jesus, well, Paul puts it this way, we of all people or most to be pitied. But brothers and sisters, our God is not the tragic God. Our God is the comic God who brings his people out of tragic circumstances, the circumstances of our fall from grace, the circumstances of our sin and misery, and he brings us into the limitless joy of a good end. Because in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul shouts. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want you to plant your heart, plant your feet on this wonderful, marvelous word, first fruits. This little word contains a thesis, one German theologian puts it. For in this little word, first fruits, we have an assurance, a sure and certain hope of our own resurrection. In what Richard Gaffin has called the resurrection harvest, Jesus is the initial portion of the whole. His resurrection is not simply a guarantee. It is a pledge, Gaffin says, because Jesus' resurrection is the actual beginning of the last great resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we, who are united to him by faith and baptism, must necessarily rise also. This certainty is so certain that we can say with Gaffin that Christ's resurrection and ours are not two separate events, but two episodes of the same marvelous, wonderful, I'm going to dare to say it, comic event. Christ, the first fruits of all who rest in him, is the promise of a great harvest yet to come. 
And I mentioned it before, but I want to remind you again, lest you somehow have missed it, the comedic trajectory of history of the Bible, of the gospel, Paul lays it out for us in verses 21 and 22. For as a man, Adam, came by death, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There it is. There it is. The comic storyline. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Restoration to glory. Unimaginable. But there is more. Because this is a different sort of comedy than the comedies we tell. This is what what Peter Lightheart calls a deep comedy, what the Lord has done and what he is doing. In Opie's story, he sort of ended where he began. Most comedies, I dare say all comedies that humans make up on their own, are sort of there and back again thing. But the deep comedy of the gospel is a movement from the glory of our created perfection through sin and misery and death to a redemption that ends in greater glory. And we shall stand on the field before the Lord our God and hear from the mouth of our Savior himself, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Even now, our Christ is destroying every rule and authority and power that is set up against him and us. But at the end, at the end, we shall see the last enemy destroyed, death. And we shall know and participate in the reign of life that shall never end life in the immediate presence of God forever and ever. It will be like Jewel the Unicorn in the Chronicles of Narnia. We, each and all, shall shout before God and each other, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. Come, join me. Come further up and further in. And brothers and sisters, we shall have all eternity to go further up and further in to a God who is limitless. Our God is so high we can't crawl over him. He is so low we can't crawl under him. He is so wide we can't go around him. But with the Lamb, in the Lamb, we shall forever go farther up and further in. 
And we shall know as we are known. That's what Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 13. And we shall behold the face of God in light and glory in these bodies, with these eyes and not others. Bodies transformed by Christ to be like his glorious body, as Paul says in Philippians. It's breathtaking. It's stupendous, this happy ending that our God has promised and will deliver to everyone who believes. And this story, this comedy of ours, of God's that we share in, it's all through the scriptures. Isaiah preaches it. In Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord our God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Why? Because the Lord has spoken it. The prophet Micah promises he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Why? Because the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For God is a great God, and he has promised us great things. And so we live in this day of sickness and death and warfare and turmoil and disintegration, knowing that every trouble, every evil, every affliction, everything bad will, when Christ returns in the flesh, become untrue and every good thing shall be ours in abundance. Here is the and they all lived happily ever after of the scriptures. John presents it to us. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They need no lamp of no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Because the Lord of hosts has spoken it. That's why we can say and mean it, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Because the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Brothers and sisters, every one of us inhabits a story And this story has only two endings. Well, it has only one ending, but for people there are two endings. There's the tragedy of Adam, the tragedy that ends in everlasting death with its unknowable terrors. And there's the comedy of Christ that ends in the unimaginable glory of reigning forever and ever with Christ before the face of God. Which is your story? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the happy comic ending of our faith. Do you believe this? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Father, you brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, making him the first fruits of a glorious great harvest. We rejoice in his everlasting victory over death and hell. Give us power, we pray, to keep in spirit, in step with the Spirit, in that new life that is ours now in Christ that we may overcome the world with the victory of our faith and have at last a part in the resurrection of the just through the merits of our risen Savior in whose name we make this prayer. Amen. <laughs>